0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Citizens NYC Live Podcast. At Citizens, we're all about helping New Yorkers come together to improve the quality of life in their neighborhoods. With help from our sponsors like Molly Parnas Livingston Foundation, Wells Fargo, Booth Ferris Foundation, TD Bank, National Grid Foundation, and many others, we're able to accomplish that goal. Today, We'll hear from the founding director of economics and urban study at the new school, Professor Darek Hamilton, and senior fellow Henry Ramos. Professor Darek will give us some background on our citizen CEO Rasan Harris and Mr. Ramos.
1: I knew Rasan Harris before he was Dr. Harris. I had the pleasure of working with him during his dissertation, where you know he put forth a topical paper that's relevant now, showing that the ways in which Black people contribute to their families and society is negated to a large extent. So when we think about philanthropy and we ignore the roles that people play in making transfers within and across families, that's a myopic notion of philanthropy, that the the sheer altruism associated with coming up in networks of poverty should be counted. We should count things like teething to your religious organization. And when we put that into context, um for example, black people uh give way more than their 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 share in a population context so Rassan was on to that that uh, brilliant analysis of of redressing the unconventional from the start, and then uh you know, I could go in and give uh, tons of stories about Henry Ramos as well, and again i I talked about this generational aspect uh the man has provided vision and leadership for which I'm fortunate to one. Uh, still be working with him and pathways by which I don't have to be Jackie Robinson. I can learn from people and trailblazers that have already done it and ease the pathway that I have. You know, Henry has served in, uh, and he still does, philanthropic organizations, uh, as well as uh, been president and CEO of leading think tanks, as well as advocacy organizations. So right now, where I'm positioned, trying to convert Uh, intellectual activity about building an inclusive economic society, one that's grounded in economic rights as a human right. By simply being born, you should not be hungry. By simply being born, you should have access to capital. That these aren't just decisions of socialism versus capitalism. This is human rights. I'm able to juxtapose that human rights, intellectual perspective into action, and then ultimately into public engagement.
2: Incredible. And uh, I want to make sure that we also ground some of this into your New York story. So, Dar, can you tell us, um, what is your connection to New York?
1: Born and raised. Born and raised proudly in Bedford-Stuyvesant, where uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant was a lot different back when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s than it is today. Uh, But I'll say that That neighborhood gave me a lot. That neighborhood gave me, you know, a foundation of people trying to make their children's lives better than their own. Uh, I saw that in Bedford-Stuyvesant, but I also had the privilege of going to Brooklyn Friends School, which is a Quaker school, downtown Brooklyn, that not only offers people a challenging curriculum for curricular development, but like many Quaker organizations, is ethical, is grounded in a social justice framework. So having that experience growing up of uh, an intellectual, strong foundation that is about justice uh, and and juxtaposing that elite resource-rich environment to the neighborhood that I grew up with, which showed me that in essence, people are the same. Uh, Mothers and fathers trying to uh, create better pathways for their offsprings and themselves, but simply didn't have the resources that was, was uh, offered by other types of environments, I could see that. And that was fundamental in my, my foundation and my development.
2: That is fantastic. And you also did a, a pretty good job of uh, introducing folks to Henry Ramos, but I'd love Henry to tell your story and your perspective of who you are and how you're entering into this.
0: Absolutely. And thank you, first and foremost, so much for the invitation to join you on the Citizens NYC podcast with uh, my dear friend and respected colleague, Derek Hamilton. He's a very hard actor follower, as you can see. Uh, He's extremely um, committed impassioned, informed, articulate. Uh, I merely live in his shadow, but I'm going to try and do my best to represent uh, on this uh, family reunion that we're putting together here. And thank you, Ross, so much for putting it together. Well, you know, my my, uh, origin story leading me to uh, have a very, very strong place in my heart for New York um, started in Los Angeles. I grew up in an entrepreneurial family of Latinos that um, did really well through my grandparents. They were immigrants. They came to the States. They landed in Los Angeles with nothing, and uh, they built a little economic empire and defied a lot of the conventions of the time. They bought property and white neighborhoods with restrictive covenants they found a way to get that done they owned businesses in the white part of town not just uh you know small businesses but fairly significant commercial properties and it it took me into my teens to realize um how privileged i was that uh you know my situation was very different from many of our family members who grew up on the east side of la i grew up on the west side um i had opportunities for the best education um and um I'm also, like Derek, a recovering basketballer. I played a lot of ball in my day uh, and had the privilege of uh, being talented enough to mostly play with African-American players that were the best in the business uh, during our youth. Um, I played with uh, players that went on to play major college ball and professional ball. And through the touring that we did, we participated in tournaments all over Southern California and other states. Um, I had an opportunity to really learn about black uh, culture, um, black history. Um, the coach of that team was very emphatic about uh, helping us all understand that uh, we were predated by important icons, and I got that history. We played against Asian teams, and I got friends uh, that, that that came out of that um, experience of Asian heritage, and they taught me a lot about um, how, how the history rolled with them, things I didn't understand or know about, and by the time I got to college, um, I was pretty aware that I had uh, some major responsibilities. Uh, it wasn't just about cruising through life and you know making the most of what my family had done before me. Um, I had a certain uh, sense of conscience about the need to be uh, part of the change that I thought needed to happen based on my exposure to you know vastly different experiences that I was growing up with. So New York quickly became a destination for me because I understood New York to be the center of gravity for ideas, for media, for uh, you know, just trend setting. And uh, my first job out of graduate school, fortunately, was at the Ford Foundation, and that's what got me into philanthropy. And uh, I've probably lived a total of about 20 years of my uh, now 63-year-old life in uh, New York City, um, uh, meeting and working with uh, icons like the two of you, uh, and trying to do my little part to make our institutions more accountable, more informed, more responsive, more inclined to the kinds of things that Derek talks about when we talk about converting from an extractive and exploitative kind of system to something that is intellectually, honestly, called a moral economy or a moral society. So I'm so happy to be engaged in conversation with you about how we make some of those things reality.
1: I didn't know you played basketball. I gotta get on a podcast to find out you were a baller.
0: Look at that. (laughs) We share some things in common. Well, uh, know too shy often to admit that he was uh, a, a star of his college basketball team. You wanna talk about that just a little bit in terms of what that meant for your formation?
1: Given that we got crushed, I don't want to talk about it. So we <laughs> the
2: No, that's that's incredible. Um, Henry, you teed up uh, a lot about community, you know, real estate, and understanding history and, and just watching the change of a community. You know, Dark, can you talk a little bit about what you think it takes for communities to, to thrive and be successful? Together and and you can really base it into your work and and some of the things that you focus on um, in your institute.
1: There is no silver bullet. You know, that that I'll lead with that. There, There is no silver bullet, but there's a package of goods and services that are so essential for people to have agency in their lives that we need to begin with a baseline level of them. And what are they? A job. What are they? an income a decent income capital you know the ways in which people generate wealth is it is wealth that begets more wealth financial literacy is important and you know what i'd even rather we call it financial coaching because the wealthiest amongst us they don't make decisions about their asset portfolios in isolation they have teams of advisors that give them information about how best to invest their resources so with financial coaching that's useful um, but it's irrelevant if you have no finances to manage in the first place. So capital is a critical ingredient. So, I, you know, I can say a right to health care. Uh, the, the, when you are sick in that most vulnerable position, the last thing you should be thinking about is finance, of, of how you're going to finance access to decent medical care. So ultimately, um, when we talk about what it takes for human flourishing, what it takes for neighborhood flourishing, The ingredient of human rights that we always often leave out is economic. It it is not novel if I tell you that the right to vote should be essential. People should be self-determining and who represents them at the government level. It's not novel if I tell you people should be able to speak their mind. So if we talk about civil rights, but what is a essence of human rights in addition to civil rights and political rights is economic rights. We, we know that you are not free if you're hungry. You are not free if you're homeless. So there is a base level of resources that, you know, in a package of goods that I can, you know, if people say this is pie in the sky, I can very much make it cogent and clear uh, that we need to, as a society, uh, ensure that, as a birthright, people have access to.
0: I think it goes without saying that you know philanthropy uh, plays an important role, probably an oversized role, in terms of like uh, providing resources that community people need at the grassroots to uh, come together, to build consensus, to develop shared uh, aims and goals, and to activate it around that. Um, these are things that in other countries oftentimes are uh, supported in so many ways by government investment and fora that are created specifically for those purposes in other democracies. And uh, our system depends very much on um, organizers, it depends very much on organizations and institutions that works like uh, the Citizens Committee of New York City, which is, you know, providing a framework for people to um, be able to cohere, providing a a space for people to be able to turn their, um, uh, their, their frustrations and their anger on occasion, as well as their dreams and their goals into reality. And um, I think it's really important that philanthropy understand, uh, more than it has perhaps in recent years, that uh, to have an active democracy requires an active citizenry. And uh, to have an active citizenry requires sometimes a lot of noise. You've got to get people activated. You've got to get them informed. You've got to get them out on the streets. Uh, this is the nature of, of how we move policy and ideas in a democratic culture, right? Um, so I think that it, it's vital when I see an organization like yours uh providing the kind of comprehensive grant making the community engagement work that you do on surveys and conferences the advocacy and thought leadership that you provide the partnerships that's a model for the larger space of around philanthropy uh, to follow more diligently and finally let me just say something that i know you know both of you but that needs to be said for the record and that is that um derek uh and and i and others at the institute on, on race power and political economy um are a very very um critical of uh, the kind of common narrative that we've all come up with, that it's all about bootstraps and individuals uh, in terms of how they behave or choices that they make. And if there's something deficient in you as a person, you're bound to fail. And the reason that people fail is precisely because of those personality-driven or behavioral-driven issues. We look at systems. We look at structures, because this does not happen by mistake that people are left out, uh, knocked out, and and, and otherwise uh, overlooked in our body politics. So it's extremely important for philanthropies to understand that they have a special responsibility um, to, uh, to really create power and agency, as Derek talks about, for people and communities in the way that they do their business. And it's not just on the grant side. We have to understand that many of these philanthropies are sitting on billions, literally billions of dollars in invested assets that are basically just on the free market, just like you would invest in the stock market or in bonds. And they are creating, uh, as a result, many of the problems that, on the grant-making side, we're trying to resolve. So there's a built-in conflict within the space around philanthropy, and I think that it's time for us to uh, really call for a reordering of philanthropic priorities so that um, the entirety of philanthropic investments are required to be spent on social purpose or environmentally responsible types of investments um, that take us in new and different directions that are essential for us to be responsive to the human uh, realities of our time. I think philanthropy has really underplayed its role. I say that with all due respect. As a person who's made his career in that space, we can and must do better.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm with you, Henry. I mean, the role of philanthropy is to provide pathways to make changes. And you mentioned the billions of dollars of assets that philanthropy holds. We should also point out that that's subsidized, that that, that, those assets are treated in a way of tax preferred status. So they subsidize assets in and of of that, in and of itself. Um, And, you know, we don't need philanthropy ultimately to substitute for government. Unfortunately, if government is derelict in their duties and people are hungry, uh, philanthropy sometimes steps in and fulfills that role. But that's not the ideal role. The ideal role is being on the vanguard. The ideal role is, is demonstrating what can be. The ideal role in my mind is facilitating a movement so that people can make government do it. The ult- what we need is public power to contrast some of the forces of accumulation and greed, not not necessarily uh, limit individuals capacity to, to engage in a, in a non-coordinated uh, way, uh, but to redress the fact that historically, the ways in which power has been commu- accumulated today has often been exploitive and extrapolative. So to redress that way that, pu- that, that private power has come up and been able to be racialized and exploitive, we need a countervailing force of government, of, of public power that can uh, redress that and make sure that everyone has pathways to be self-fulfilling.
2: I love you talking about public power because that is a lot behind what citizens committee is about we make micro grants to community-led initiatives to improve neighborhoods and it's an attempt to democratize access to civic engagement by providing philanthropic resources so that folks can get involved simply put You don't necessarily need to be connected or privileged to get access to resources to change your community and giving folks the power to be able to solve problems and and put their vision of what their community can look like forward um, is at the heart of why we were created because we believe that people can can really make a difference and and not in the place of, of government, but not in the place of other people who should be responsible for, making sure that communities are whole, but making sure that average individuals have a place at the table. So I think that's um, significant.
1: If if you don't mind, Rashawn, and obviously jump in, Henry, at any point, but maybe we could juxtapose pathways of social mobility that some people talk about with regards to self-help versus uh, collective efficacy, versus uh, political action, and 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 it's a false dichotomy I presented because you can have both need not be one or the other, but you know I want us to be careful in thinking that people individually can ultimately change structures that are and been so so ingrained in our society that are either class based or race based. That in my view the the best pathway to structurally change a society is collective power. It is, it is linked fate, and it is through public political action. Um, it is useful to buy um, black goods and support black businesses, um, even from a, dare I say, aesthetic purpose. But from a capital standpoint, to recognize that these these businesses are undercapitalized to begin with and that black communities are undercapitalized to begin with, to think that that's going to be the sole mechanism or the mechanism to lead to structural change in our society. You know, I, I want to be careful about that. I want, and I even want to point to history and say that, uh, the ways in which groups have been able to structurally change society has been through public power and the ways in which to exert public power is collective action. It's political action.
2: I think that's extremely powerful. It's the idea that together, and as you said, linked fate. That you know, as you know, I go, we go, and as you go, I go. Is so important for us to to understand that and to act in ways in which um, we're doing what's great for the collective good. So, as we uh, think about recovery and as we think about work. Um, One of the things I wanted to to talk about as part of this is the fact that people need the tools to be able to take advantage of this leadership moment. And I wanted to shout out that the nonprofit finance fund that that Henry is uh, board chair of um, provided a partnership with Citizens Committee for New York City to provide financial operations training for some of our grantee partners. And having the tools to be able to think about growing and creating sustainable efforts in organizations and in and, and movements, I think is extremely important. And the financial part of that uh, is part of the equation because you need that, that technical assistance. And I would love, Henry, to talk a little bit about skills in people's hands that make it possible. And Dark, if you have any comments on that like the, the skills and the things and know how people should think about in order to be able to thrive and think about recovery, that'd be helpful. So Henry.
0: Yeah, happy to talk about that. And thanks for that opportunity um, and the shout out to Nonprofit Finance Fund. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled that we're in partnership on that front. Yeah, I mean, I think the basic uh, point is very well taken. I mean, people don't just do things because they don't do things in a vacuum. They, they need context and they need tools. They need tactics, they need support uh, in terms of lifting up ideas into action. And, you know, at the core of what we're saying, without saying it, is that money is power. Let's face it. In American capitalist society, you know, you, you don't have money or access to uh, capital. You, you really can't play. And Derek pointed up at the outset that, you know, if you don't have a job or if you're, you're not well educated, if you're unhealthy or you lack uh, housing or other kinds of basic rights like that, you can't even play. You're not even in the game. You're outside in the parking lot while others are in the stadium on the field playing the game, right? So uh, organizations like the Nonprofit Finance Fund, I think, are very vital, much the way that I think that uh, the work of the Citizens Committee is in terms of establishing a framework for there to be uh, an exchange of capital, an exchange of ideas and um, uh, kind of uh, a reliance on, on uh, purposeful data and the promulgation and development of models that we can all learn from uh, and hopefully at some point scale and normalize is the way that we do our business. So um, I, I do think that it's very important for people at the grassroots level to have access to these kinds of resources. And um, also on the reverse side, perhaps more importantly, for larger institutions that are in service to these communities and their leadership to listen very carefully, to take their cues from the people on the ground, because you know the old saying goes that the people who are closest to the problems are closest to the solutions. And in my experience, that has always been true. It's not to say that you know people um, don't need help. It doesn't mean they don't need tools, but people are very wise and aware of their lived experience. They can see what's happening in the movie that they're living in every day. And I think it's the uh, incumbent job of organizations like yours, like ours at NFF, like the Institute that Derek and I uh, roll with, uh, to, to always be first and foremost responsive to what we're hearing from people on the ground and to be in service to their needs uh, in the kind of studies and the kinds of capital and the kinds of idea of uh, uh, formation that we um, offer to them uh, in our alliances.
1: I have nothing to add, Henry. Drop the mic. <laughs> well said, brother.
2: <laughs> that that that's incredible. Um, so as we're closing up this conversation, which I'm really grateful for, I was wondering, um, what are some of the things that you help people keep in mind as we go into next phase of where we are as people and as a society you know any like closing thoughts or or closing questions that you want people to consider um as they're moving along um henry if you go first and, and dark close out then that'd be great sure thank you so much yeah i mean i think
0: people should be encouraged and inclined to set their sides high I know that we live in times that are are challenging to all of us, and there's a lot of bad news pretty much every day that we have to live through and face. But there have been uh, very, very clear periods in our history. You can go back to the, uh, you know, the the progressive era of the 20s and 30s. You can go back to the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, during the modern civil rights uh, struggles. Um, uh, You know, we're in a period right now of uh, reawakening. I think people have taken to the streets in recent years and engaged and voted and done things in in numbers that we haven't seen for a long time because it is one of those major uh, inflection points that we're in. And I think people have to um, be encouraged to rise above their fears, their skepticism, their cynicism. Uh, We need to focus on the positives. There are many, many important positive things that have happened in recent years, despite the major challenges we're so up against People need to maintain hope um and they need to do some of the things we talked about in this call which is to be much more intentional about how they organize how they activate how they how they use their voice and frankly where we're concerned in closing i think it's very imperative that uh, people like derek myself you uh, dr harris who are thought leaders um, are able to connect in meaningful and actionable ways with people on the ground whose ideas really have to drive us into the the best part of what awaits us in the balance of the 21st century. If we listen and we activate accordingly, um, I'm pretty confident, notwithstanding the, the challenges that we have, that we'll end up on the right side of history.
1: I will close by pointing out first that it has never been the case in human history that race or the ways in which we divide people based on cursory identities like gender, like sexual orientation, like immigrant status, like race, has been separable from the politics of our society or the economics of our society, that all three are always iteratively linked. The ways in which we come up with public policy is grounded in notions of who's deserving and who's not deserving. And the notion that there is this um, fictive market out there where through individual grit, hard work, and trade and transaction, that that's the best arbiter that's natural of, of deciding who gets and who does not get has always been a fallacy government is always involved in transaction and structures. even when you go to a farmer's market there are rules by who gets the trade and who doesn't get the trade so those three things have always been iteratively linked so let's lead with that and then let's acknowledge that over the last 50 years our society has been going, growing in a trend where america's increasing productivity have been going to the elite and upper middle class while virtually flatlining uh well-being for everyone else so that growing inequality should also be thought of in the context of this is the 20th year anniversary of welfare reform and compare that to the child tax credit we when we passed welfare reform we're in a political nomenclature of we need to discipline poor people. We need to sanction poor people's attitudes, efforts. Now we're in a a place where simply by having a child, that is a a big resource and people need resources. They need resources to thrive in their lives. That by providing resources, not only do we directly combat hunger and poverty, but it facilitates people to have agency in their lives, to be able to go to work, to be able to afford the transportation, to get on a train, to get to a job. And that's just one one route. There are many others. So we need a paradigm shift. We need a paradigm shift towards empowerment of people. And and then let me say that one ingredient that we need to also be cognizant of and thinking about Pathway Forward is the pessimism that goes along with thinking that we can't change our lives, the thinking that that the status quo is always going to prevail. That pessimism will be a truism if we adopt it. The ways in which we can change our society is through action, collective action, and we should do it simply because it's the right thing to do.